Christians around the globe believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and as the Word of God, it is without error. However, many people have objected and argued that Christians are guilty of circular reasoning. They argue it is fallacious to believe the Bible is the Word of God because it says it is the Word of God, because you can't conclude that it's the Word of God unless you already believe it is the Word of God. To answer this objection, in this episode, I am going to discuss the doctrine of inerrancy, and after clearing up some misconceptions, I'll explain how the three-step apologetic method gets around the circularity problem. So I hope you'll stick around to find out why we believe it is rational to conclude that the Bible is the Word of God. Welcome back, everyone. In this episode, we will be discussing the inerrancy and inspiration of the Bible. Uh, We just finished in the last episode uh, talking about Jesus' resurrection, and that's really uh, pretty much the culmination of the three-step apologetic method uh, where we started talking about how truth exists, God exists, and Jesus rose from the dead. Well, one last kind of uh, capstone topic I wanted to touch on is the inerrancy, mainly the inerrancy of the Bible. We will talk about inspiration a little bit today, uh, but mainly about inerrancy and how the three-step apologetic method um, helps you, without using circular reasoning, conclude that the Bible is the Word of God and is therefore without error. Okay, we're going to be talking about misconceptions, so we'll define what inerrancy means. We'll look at evidence for it. I'll show you an argument for it, and uh, and, and that's going to be basically it. And this is going to set us up to talk about um, uh, religious pluralism and the question about what about those people who never heard the gospel in the next couple lectures. So um, if you listen to the last episode where I presented the trilemma argument for the resurrection of Jesus, I, I start all of these episodes off talking, uh, presenting a Bible passage, and uh, in, in the last episode I presented for the first time Mark 7, verse 13. Now, I usually, on the first time I show a, a Bible passage, I go ahead and talk about all the background and everything, but I thought I would just go ahead and, and briefly mention it in the last episode, and in this episode, I was going to talk a lot more about it like I usually do on the first go-around. Um, because there was so much to talk about in that last episode, and if you if you listen to it, you know what I'm talking about. The episode ran about an hour and a half, so um, there's a lot to talk about. I went ahead and just left some uh, discussion on this Mark 7 passage for this episode, and, and it's a lot more relevant to this episode as well. So here's the passage. It's Mark 7, verse 13. It says, You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many other similar things. Okay, so as, as we already know, of course, this verse is from the Gospel of Mark, and the context of it is where some of the Pharisees and scribes were getting on to Jesus because his disciples were eating with unwashed hands. Well, Jesus replies to them and basically says that they are hypocrites who are following the law with their actions, 
but they are not following the law with their hearts. And, you know, also some of their man-made rules that were in place ended up breaking some of the Old Testament laws, as Jesus points out in the verse. Now, the main reason why I included this verse in this series is because I wanted to show you that this, uh, how Jesus refers to the Old Testament here in this verse. Notice that he is calling the laws in the Old Testament the Word of God. Um, as you will see, this is another major portion of our argument when we're trying to make the case for the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, and, and what we're going to be looking at today is that there are more, a lot more passages than just this, but it's striking, you know, and, and we're actually going to get in even more detail with this passage if you look at the context of it. We'll actually look at it, I, th- I believe, in, in the Gospel of Matthew. But, uh, you know, Jesus isn't just talking about a passage or two. He's talking about the law that was handed down from Moses, right? Well, uh, he ca- he's basically here calling the law the word of God. So this is gonna ha- this is gonna form a portion of our argument for the inerrancy of Scripture in this uh, episode. Okay, um, at the beginning, besides presenting you with a Bible passage at the beginning of all these, I also provide questions for reflection. So. Um, I'd love to hear some feedback from my listeners, whether uh, you put comments on a video or if you send me an email, uh, getting in contact with me through my academic website, Um Reach out to me. Uh, let me know what you think of these or any other comments you might have. But here's the questions for reflection, some things to be thinking about over the course of this uh, lecture and the next The first question is, do you think it is circular to claim that the Bible is the Word of God because the Bible says it is the Word of God? You'll definitely be getting the answer to that today. Uh, The second question is, does what we have covered provide a way out of this circularity? Third, have you heard of the doctrine of inerrancy before? What is it? And fourth, if you have heard of it, have you heard anyone talk about it in a negative way? Okay, I'm going to be hoping to answer some of those questions and to clear up some misconceptions in this uh, lecture, like I, like I said earlier. Okay, so let's define biblical inerrancy. If you've been following the series, you know that a lot of my terms I get from the Douglas Grotice text, uh, Christian Apologetics. But here, I, I went to one of my systematic theology books. I, I shopped around. I wanted to see who I thought... Uh, <laughs> um, uh, define the term the best, and I really, I really enjoy this definition from Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. Wayne Grudem defines biblical inerrancy as scripture, and he says, "Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact." Okay, so that's the definition of biblical inerrancy that we're going to be rolling with. Now, notice in this definition that it's saying that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. I wanted to um, go ahead and try to clear up a couple of misconceptions. Oh, and I'm forgetting, too, I, I have a, a quote from Grudem that I think also helps uh, explain this a little bit more. So our definition says, Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. And here's a quote from Grudem. The Bible always tells the truth, and it always tells the truth concerning everything that it talks about. That's what we're saying biblical inerrancy means. We're just saying that there is no error in the Bible in the original manuscripts. Everything that the Bible 
everything that the original manuscripts uh, affirm is true. Okay. Now, um, here we go. I've, I've got some, some bullet points that kind of give you an outline of what I was going to talk about today. The first one set, uh, is going to be the topic of, uh, really, these are the two main misconceptions I wanted to get out of the way. Some people think that uh, because you can find typos or other mistakes in the uh, manuscripts, the existing manuscripts, and that means the uh, Bible's not inerrant, so we're going to answer that. Some people think that because the Bible, there's slavery and, and people killing their kids and other things like that in the Bible, that it can't be inerrant. We're going to talk about that. And uh, then I'm going to present you an argument for the doctrine of inerrancy after we've cleared up misconceptions. And then I'm going to talk about the apologetic implications for inerrancy. Uh, just some things that have been not, you might not necessarily find this in any uh, te apologetics textbook, but just something that I've thought about and, and kind of some practical implications that uh, uh, regarding inerrancy that I've uh, used over the years when I've been talking to people uh, in a, an apologetic and, and evangelistic context. Okay, so the first misconception that we want to get out of the way. Some people object, okay, to the doctrine of inerrancy, this idea that the Bible and the original manuscripts is without error and everything it affirms. And, and they, they object because they say, well, uh, we don't have the original manuscripts, so why do you even worry about whether it's saying that the Bible is inerrant or not? If we don't have the original manuscripts, then it doesn't matter, okay? Now, Hopefully, you if you have been listening to all the lectures in this series, you should already know um, and be equipped with the knowledge to, to be able to answer this objection, okay? Right? Now, first of all, I wanted to, and I kind of already mentioned it, but I just wanted to emphasize that what inerrancy means, okay, is that the original manuscripts are the ones that are inspired, so again, when we went over the uh, all the evidence for the New Testament manuscripts, for example, and and you would you would find similar things when you study the Old Testament manuscripts. Uh, but having said that, the Old Testament manuscripts had even less uh, uh, typos and other uh, small mistakes in them. But uh, we we pointed out that yes, whenever we uh, take all the existing manuscripts of the New Testament and we sh and we uh, compare them with each other, we do see that there are small variations. Uh, and you can, you can tell that some of them were just uh, omitting a letter, maybe omitting a word. And, and we mentioned in that lecture that there's, this doesn't bring into question any major Christian doctrine. It's only on, it's only on a handful of lines, and, um, and it, it doesn't bring into question, like I said, any important major doctrine of Christianity. We can tell that there's variations among the manuscripts, but that doesn't have anything to do with biblical inerrancy because what we're saying is that the manuscripts, the original manuscripts are the ones that were inspired, not the manuscripts we have today. Those are just people copying things down, and we don't have any reason to believe that God inspired the copying of every single manuscript. Uh, we just think that God ins inspired the original authors of, of the, the manuscripts, okay? And because we're saying that, some people say, well, then why does it even matter? Because we don't have the original manuscripts anymore. So why do you even care if the originals were inspired or not? Well, it's because, like what we mentioned about in that lecture on the New Testament documents, 
they are 99, 99 plus percent pure, right? So we are, we think that we have at least 99 point whatever percent of what the original manuscript said. So we're extremely close to word for word what the original author said. So since we, we think we have 99.99% of what the original authors wrote, then it is really important because uh, what we're saying is in those original manuscripts, it was all 100% correct. What Everything that the original manuscripts affirmed, right? So it still is relevant because we are sure that we have 99% of what the original authors wrote. So even though we don't have the original manuscripts, it's not a big deal for inerrancy because we are 99% sure, or excuse me, not 99% sure, we're, we're sure that we have 99% of what, uh, at least 99% of what the original authors wrote. Okay, so that's one misconception I just wanted to get out of the way, kind of an objection someone might make. Uh, that, that inerrancy doesn't matter if we don't have the original manuscripts. Another misconception has to do with uh, what people think. You know, when we saw this definition of inerrancy, we said that uh, it's saying that the scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. So uh, the Bible always tells the truth. Okay, the next misconception I wanted to clear up has to do with what the Bible teaches, okay? Uh, many people have noticed that there's murder and, and slavery in the Bible, and they think that that means the Bible can't be inerrant. Or some other people have argued that the Bible makes statements that are that are obviously proven to be false through science. Okay? Um, you know, so like, for example, the, the Bible might say that the sun rises. But modern science uh, indicates, like the evidence indicates, right, that the sun doesn't rise the sun doesn't go anywhere. It, it rotates. And as the earth rotates around the sun, the earth spins. And that makes it look like the sun is rising. But the sun really isn't um, going anywhere in relation to this, the earth. The earth is the thing that's moving. So some people might say, well, that means that the Bible is not inerrant because it's teaching that the sun moves and rises, but the sun doesn't rise. Now, here's but here's the thing. Uh, because the authors of the Bible are speaking to everyday people, uh, we don't think that whenever they say something like the sun rises, that it's teaching a scientific fact, right? Because the author might say that the sun rises uh, in the context of a regular conversation, then uh, it's okay for them to say that the sun rises because this is using everyday phenomenological speech, right? So just because the just because inerrancy says the Bible is correct in everything it says, and you can see by my slide, my slide says the Bible teaches every fact on any one subject. That's not what inerrancy is teaching, okay? When an author says the sun rises, what inerrancy isn't saying is that the, the, the proposition the sun rises is supposed to be true across every single discipline. So what, what inerrancy doesn't entail is that whenever an author says the sun rises, that, that that fact has to be true across every single discipline, including science, right? The fact of the matter is, when you understand the original context of the, the Bible passage, you understand the author and who the author's audience was, and the author's perspective, you can tell that the author is just using everyday phenomenological language, right? So whenever, you know, you're just 
like we all know, when we're sitting on this planet and we look in the morning, we see that the sun appears to rise. So that statement is true from a phenomenological perspective, right? Like uh, from our perspective, it looks like the sun rises. So when you say that, you're, it's true uh, to a certain extent, but maybe not from a scientific perspective. But just because uh, an author is saying something doesn't mean that you have to scrutinize it uh, with a discipline whenever the author isn't making a scientific claim. Does that make sense? So so that's that's one thing to, to try to clear up is that just because an author says something in a certain context, it doesn't mean inerrancy doesn't entail that 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 can be scrutinized from every single discipline. You know, if I make a statement and say I'm uh, I feel as cold as ice. Well, I might feel really cold. And we know from everyday language that I don't mean I'm literally um, at, at a freezing at a temperature that would freeze water. Right. Uh, I'm just using uh, everyday speech to say that I'm really cold. So uh, and, and biblical authors are allowed to do that. So just because, like I said, just because they might say the sun rises or some other everyday, use everyday speech, it doesn't mean that you can scrutinize it with science and all these other things when they didn't mean to say it's something scientific. Um, another thing has to do with the events that have another misconception has to do with the events that happen in the Bible. Like I, like I mentioned earlier, some people see that uh, people own slaves in the Bible. People are killing their kids in the Bible. Kill, people are killing each other in the Bible. People are committing adultery and all sorts of things. And they say, well, the Bible can't be inerrant because it includes all these stories with all these horrible, immoral things. Uh, and that is true that the Bible contains stories about that. But the big misconception is that just because the Bible mentions something happening, that the Bible is necessarily condoning that thing, right? You know, whenever you read through the Bible and you see the stories, you'll see that God gave, for one, God is said to be good, and God never does anything contrary to that claim, but also God gives commands to human beings to not murder each other, to not steal, and to not burn their kids in the fire and kill their kids and all sorts of things like that. So obviously God is a good God in the stories and God commands people to be good like he is. So just because a story shows someone murdering somebody doesn't mean, like it's obvious that God doesn't like that. And it's obviously it's obvious that it's not being condoned. It's just being mentioned. So the doctrine of inerrancy isn't called into question just because the Bible talks about one person killing another. Okay, what the doctrine of inerrancy doesn't entail is that when one person kills another in the Bible, that the Bible is condoning slavery. The doctrine of inerrancy entails that when the Bible says that one person killed another, it is true that that happened. Right. If you see my slides, an example is that uh, someone might point out that uh, the Bible shows Satan telling a lie. So they might say, well, does this mean it's okay to tell lies or that Satan's lies are true? Um, no, the, the correct way to look at it is that if, if the Bible tells about Satan telling a lie, the, it is true that Satan told a lie in the way that Satan was portrayed to do that. Not that Satan's lie, statements are true or that it's okay to lie, okay? Because obviously God commanded us not to lie. So we know that that's immoral. And uh, so the Bible's not obviously not condoning it. It's just true that that's actually what happened. Because the, the Bible in those instances is, is affirming that that is what happened. Not affirming that that's okay, not condoning it, just affirming that that is a, it's a true story that, that Satan told a lie. 
or that someone killed someone else or something like that. Okay, so we're trying to get these uh, misconceptions out of the way. We don't want to say that just because the Bible makes a statement, it's affirming uh, this across every single discipline, like some kind of technical statement across every single discipline. And we don't want to say that just because the Bible tells a story with some immoral thing in it that the Bible's condoning that. Okay, the Bible's pretty clear on what it condones uh, ethically, and uh, it is very clear that that killing and, and lying and these things are not uh, good things to do, right? Uh, and also, again, we want to just emphasize that the inerrancy entails that the uh, scriptures are inerrant in the original manuscripts. So having gotten those misconceptions out of the way, and let me know if you have any other misconceptions, maybe we can talk about it through email or something like that or in the comment section. Okay, uh, I wanted to present, like I said, a, an argument for the doctrine of inerrancy. And because why? It was because what I mentioned in the introduction. Christians believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And there's this uh, this meme out there, this common uh, thought that, that uh, atheists and other people always bring up, non-Christians bring up, is that Christians are... are guilty of circular reasoning. They believe the Bible is the Word of God because the Bible says it's the Word of God. You know, if you're, if you're, uh, I think I've talked about circular reasoning in this uh, series before in some of the previous lectures, but just so you know, circular reasoning is a fallacy uh, in, in logic. It's a logical fallacy. Circular reasoning is when you reach a conclusion based upon you having already assumed that that conclusion is true in your premises of your argument. And hopefully you can see why that would not be a good thing, right? If I assume something is true and then conclude it's true on the basis of my assumption, then I'm not providing good logical reasons to believe the conclusion. Uh, if I already assumed it was true, apart from any evidence, then that is a bad basis to make a, a conclusion that it is true, okay? You know, and, and whenever I explain that fallacy, actually, in class, that, that's always what comes to my mind is this objection to Christians, is this objection to the Christian doctrine of inerrancy. The, uh, the common objection is that Christians are guilty of circular reasoning because, because the Bible says it's the Word of God, they conclude it's the Word of God, but they only think it's that conclusion is true because they already think it's the Word of God, Right. So we don't want to be guilty of this circular reasoning because we don't want to hold any fallacious beliefs, right? But uh, a lot of Christians might not realize that there is a non-circular way to establish inerrancy, and that's what this argument here that I'm presenting to you uh, does. And as you'll see, we use the three-step apologetic method that I just explained in all the previous lectures Three-step apologetic method, right, being that you establish that truth exists uh, and that uh, God exists and that Jesus rose from the dead. Those are your three steps. Once you get to all those three, kind of a capstone issue is that you can use those, use that three-step method to show why we think it's rational to why we think it is rational to conclude that the Bible is inerrant. Okay, so I'm going to read this uh, argument to you. If you've been following the series, you know that most uh, things I've been getting, a, a lot of this material is based off of the textbook I used for the original apologetics class I taught at Kingdom Preparatory Academy. And the textbook I've already mentioned is uh, Doug Glo Douglas Grotice's book, Christian Apologetics. 
in that book, he has a argument for inerrancy listed out. However, the the argument that I'm going to mention and the argument I have listed in my slides is actually from uh, the late Norman Geisler, Dr. Norman Geisler. I like his uh, the way he puts it because it just uh, in the premises I think it explains some of the ins and outs of inerrancy just a little bit better than Grotius's argument. But they're both pretty much the same, and they both pretty much say the same things. I just like the way Geisler worded it and and uh, emphasizes things. So I'm going with uh, the specific way that Dr. Norman Geisler listed this argument in his book, Christian Apologetics, okay, second edition. So here's how the argument goes. It's uh, four premises and a conclusion. Premise one says, the New Testament documents are historically reliable. Premise two these documents accurately present Christ as claiming to be God incarnate and proving it by fulfilling messianic prophecy, by living a sinless life and miraculous life, and by predicting and accomplishing his resurrection from the dead. Premise three, whatever Christ, who is God, teaches is true. Four, Christ confirmed that the Old Testament is the written word of God and promised that his disciples would write the New Testament. 5. Conclusion. Therefore, it is true on the divine authority of Jesus Christ that the Bible is the written word of God. Okay? Just a basic breakdown of this argument. What we're saying is the New Testament documents are reliable. The New Testament documents um, attest to Jesus living a sinless life, claiming to be God, uh, and the fulfillment of messianic prophecies, and then actually rising from the dead. And then uh, we just take that and we say, well, if Jesus is God, everything he teaches is true. And the documents point out that he said that the Old Testament is the word of God, and he promised that the New Testament would be the word of God. So we conclude, therefore, uh, the Bible, the Old and New Testaments, are the word of God, and it's on the authority of God himself. Okay? So let me walk you through this argument premise by premise and say just a few things about how you would defend these. Now, like I said, most of everything we've already covered is is evidence for uh, this for some of these premises, right? So premise one, if you remember, says the New Testament documents are historically reliable. Well, if you've been following this series, you'll know that I can't defend this premise uh, in this one short shortish lecture. Because I already spent like an hour and 15 minutes in another lecture specifically talking about why we think the New Testament documents are historically reliable. In fact, uh, it's not just the documents, it's the writers themselves, right? And I spent two full lectures, one lecture talking about how the documents themselves are reliable. I spent another entire lecture talking about how the writers of the New Testament documents are reliable because they show uh, all these earmarks of historicity in their writings. And then I gave even more evidence for the reliability of the writers whenever I showed uh, arguments for Jesus' existence, and we talked about undesigned coincidences and gave more evidence that the New Testament authors are eyewitnesses to the accounts that they were uh, talking about in the Gospels, okay? So uh, I'm not going to defend this here, but that's a that's kind of a, a summary of what we have covered in previous lectures. One of, one of those lectures is called the New Testament documents. The other one is called the New Testament writers. And in those lectures, I gave you all the evidence to believe that premise one is true. The documents are reliable because they're 99% pure. 
They have, we have more New Testament manuscripts than any other ancient work, and those manuscripts have the smallest gap between the original writings and the extant manuscripts. So they're extremely reliable, the most reliable ancient writing uh, in existence or throughout all history. Uh, and then uh, things to be thinking about with the reliability of the authors. We showed that they had undesigned coincidences. Uh, they had all these variations in the Gospels that when you piece these variations together, it gives you the fuller picture, not something that we think that someone would just make up if they were creating the story and colluding. If they created these stories and colluded amongst each other, they would just have one Gospel. There wouldn't be four. But there's actually four Gospels that tell the stories from just a slightly different way. So when you piece the Gospels together, you get a fuller picture of what happens, and it never actually contradicts itself. So that seems to be like they were just telling it from their perspective, and these are eyewitness accounts. A second thing is that they show earmarks of historicity. The, uh, the Gospel writers, the apostles, make embarrassing admissions. Uh, the things that they claim are... Uh, are confirmed by some extra-biblical sources that were actually written by enemies of Christianity and uh, other considerations, okay? And one of the biggest things that we saw is that it seems like what the, the authors said is true uh, is, is something involving what we call the Jerusalem factor. This is the, this is the fact that Christianity got started in Jerusalem, which is the one place you wouldn't want to create a, a, the Christian religion if you were just making it up, because it's the headquarters of uh, Judaism that is that was highly monotheistic in the sense that it it thought it would be you know th when I say that Christianity uh, you know is going against Jew uh, Jewish monotheism it's not like I'm saying that Christianity is polytheistic, but Christianity entails a Trinity right there's there's more than one person in the Godhead. So there's three persons in one essence, right? It's one God, so it still is monotheism, but there's three persons in God. Well, that was heresy uh, to Judaism. You know, saying that Jesus, a man, is God is heresy in, in Judaism. And you can see in the, Ulta, in the um, gospel accounts that whenever Jesus claimed to be God, they tried to stone him to death. Well, that's one of the reasons why you wouldn't start Christianity if you were just making it up for money or power. You wouldn't start it. In Jerusalem, Jerusalem also is the home is the place where all the events are said to have occurred. So if it didn't really occur, and you start the religion in Jerusalem, and you're just making this up, then people are going to say, "No, that never occurred because I was there. I was in the places at the times they said this happened, and that never happened." But guess what? Christianity gets started in Jerusalem. This is also controlled by the Romans, who are polytheistic and wanted to keep the peace. Obviously, Christians stirred up a lot of trouble with their with their claims. So um, the Christians are kind of making enemies out of the Jews and the Romans. So if you're if you're making this religion up, even though it uh, the stories are false, you wouldn't start it in Jerusalem. Yet that is exactly what the apostles did. And not only that, but Jerusalem uh, Christianity grows there. If it was false, they would have just confirmed it was false. They wouldn't have went with it. There were actually a lot of uh, false messiahs in the first century. But Christianity grows in the one place that it should never grow if it was false. Uh, it grows from Jerusalem. Okay, so that's. But again, I, I'm probably just uh, repeating myself a little bit too much since I already covered all this in previous uh, lectures. But there's there's all the things that we would say about defending premise one. The New Testament documents are historically reliable. Okay, so basically what we're saying is whenever the New Testament documents say some things about Jesus. Uh, we're going to believe it's true because of the earmarks of historicity and 
that the, we are we think that we have 99% of what the original manuscript said. Okay. Step two, premise two says, these documents accurately present Christ as claiming to be God incarnate and proving it by fulfilling messianic prophecy, by living sinless and miraculous life, and by predicting and accomplishing his resurrection from the dead. Okay. Step two basically is what we established in the last couple lectures. When you do the trilemma argument, the modern trilemma argument for Jesus' resurrection, or you do the minimal facts approach, what you're doing is you're showing how all of the evidence points to the, to, um, the historicity, to the factuality of Jesus actually uh, and literally rising from the dead. Okay, so Jesus, we know from the gospel accounts, uh, and we've established that these authors and the manuscripts are reliable. We know from the gospel accounts that Jesus claimed to be God, claimed that he was going to rise from the dead, claimed that he was the fulfillment of messianic prophecy, and then he actually did rise from the dead. Okay, So since he predicted this, and since he said all these things, and we know from what Judaism teaches about God, that God would not confirm the words of a liar, God would not raise a sinner from the dead, uh, that Jesus really did live a sinless life, and he really did, uh, he really was a true prophet, and everything he said was true, including the, his claims to be God and all these other things. Okay, so uh, step two, you have to uh, rely on a lot of the stuff that we've already talked about, mainly uh, everything that we covered when we were uh, showing that Jesus really did rise from the dead. You know, there's just a little bit more to it. You just mentioned that all these things that he said about himself and that when that came true, it confirmed everything about him, right? Including his claim to be God, okay? Now, step three and four, premises three and four, is whenever you're getting more into things that uh, we haven't covered before, okay? Step three, or, or premise three, says, whatever Christ who is God teaches is true, so, I, honestly, I don't think when you're making the argument for an inerrancy that too many people are going to object to premise three. But there are biblical and philosophical reasons for believing that God is truthful, okay? The Bible itself, you know, so if you're going along with what, you know, Jesus claims to be God, and and, and you'll see here in a second, you kind of need to uh, think about a couple things that happened in premise four as well. But uh, Jesus is claiming to be God, right? Well, the God of the Old Testament, who he was claiming to be, is said to be someone who won't lie. Uh, in Numbers 23, verse 19, it says, God is not a man that he might lie, or a son of man that he might change his mind. Does he speak and not act, or promise and not fulfill? You know, a rhetorical question saying, no, he doesn't do those things. When he speaks, he acts, and when he promises, he fulfills. He, he is truthful in what he says. Another example is from Psalm 12, verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in an earthen furnace, purified seven times. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Now, you know, using the Bible to say that Jesus is truthful... Um, I'm not necessarily, you know, I'm, hopefully you realize I'm not doing a circularity thing here either. What we're saying is, is that since we've established that Jesus is God, 
the thing is, Jesus claimed to be the very God that was mentioned in the Old Testament, right? Do you remember that one passage we talked about where Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am? That was an indicator that Jesus is saying that he is, he is on the same level and that he is the God of the Old Testament, okay? Um, you know, and then it gets a little bit more complicated. You know, I can't, I don't have time to explain the the Trinity and, and, and all that, uh, but Jesus, just so you know, Jesus was claiming to be the God of the Old Testament. Well, if he's claiming to be the God of the Old Testament, and we have established that uh, that God of the Old Testament is said to be someone who doesn't lie, then it would follow that Jesus, everything he says is going to be the truth, right? Um, but having said that, whether you don't, whether you use those Bible passages or not, there's good philosophical reasons to believe that uh, if God exists, you know, which we've already established in step two of the three-step apologetic method, that God is going to be truthful in everything he would tell people. Okay, so the first thing is that it's, it's easy to conclude that if God created everything from nothing and sustains everything in existence at every moment, then God knows everything there is to know about the universe. So, at least in the sense that God knows everything about the universe, God is all-knowing, right? So uh, God can't be mistaken about things, right? Everything he teaches is going to be true. Uh, everything he teaches about reality is going to be true. Uh, another philosophical thing to think about is that since God is thought to be perfect, right? Uh, God is eternal, perfect, unchanging. God exists not frozen, but God exists in this unchanging, perfect state, right? God doesn't change because temporal, imperfect things are always going through change. But since God is infinitely perfect, there's nothing that God could change into. So he's that's one of the reasons for, for concluding that he's uh, timeless and eternal. But anyways, since God is perfect, there is nothing that God needs to fulfill him in some way. Does that make sense? Uh, uh God doesn't need to gain some kind of knowledge. He doesn't need to learn some new, uh, learn something new. He doesn't need to gain some new experience. I mean, he's just infinitely perfect in every way. Okay, um, and you know, I don't have time to get into philosophical theology, but what, what one thing this would entail is that God wouldn't gain anything from lying. He wouldn't have a reason to lie. So. Um, God knows everything, so he can't be in error, and God uh, would have no reason to lie to people, especially whenever he teaches that it's not okay to lie. So, uh, so you know, again, I don't think people are going to object to this, but there's premise three. Whatever Christ who is God teaches is true, okay? Now, having established that, so step one said the New Testament manuscripts were liable, uh, and the authors, step two said that Jesus rose from the dead and is therefore God. Step three says that uh, whatever Jesus teaches is true. Now, in step four, premise four is where uh, we look at some things that Jesus claimed in the gospel accounts, okay? Premise four says, Christ confirmed that the Old Testament is the written word of God and promised that his disciples would write the New Testament. And what I was going to show you, now there's more than this, there's more than this, but there's many places in the New Testament where we see the the uh, gospel writers uh, showing that Jesus claimed that the Hebrew old the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is the Word of God. A lot of cases, when you look at parallel 
um, uh, gospel accounts, you'll see that Jesus calls calls the Old Testament the Law and the Prophets, and then maybe in a parallel account, he, he's he said that it's the Word of God. There's a lot of instances of this, but I was just going to focus on a few because uh, for time's sake. Um, but again, you know, this is another one of those things. If you if you read Geisler's Christian Apologetics, if you read Doug Grotai's Christian Apologetics, you can dig more. You can dig more deeply into this, or you can take a class at Southern Evangelical Seminary. But <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, let's look at some of these passages. So Jesus said, "The Old Testament is the Word of God." I'm just going to look at Matthew five, Luke twenty four, Matthew fifteen, and uh, and twenty two, and Mark twelve for this. Okay. So the first one I wanted to show you, this is a passage in Matthew 5, verses 17 through 18. Jesus says, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all these things are accomplished. Now, this passage is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and here Jesus is saying that he is going to fulfill what was said in the Law and the Prophets. Law here refers to the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Torah, and Prophets refers to the rest of the Hebrew Bible, since the Jews believed that anyone who wrote a book of the Bible was a prophet from God, right? So it is, a, it is known that the phrase law and the prophets is a reference to the entire Hebrew Bible. I just wanted to emphasize that and, and show you this next one as well and just kind of bring a point out of these, these two passages. In Luke 24, verse 44, uh, it says, He told them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Okay? Now, I just want you to know, uh, in my studies, I've found that biblical scholars believe that whether Jesus says the law, and this was a, it was a common way of mentioning it back then, because they believe that anyone who wrote a, a book of the Bible was a prophet, uh, when, they, when they say law and the prophets, or law or the prophets, or whatever, it's a, it, they're basically mentioning the entire uh, Old Testament. Now, Sometimes, though, Jesus would just get a little bit more, uh, go a little bit more into detail and call it the Law of Moses, uh, the Prophets, and the Psalms. But regardless of whether he mentions in it like that or just says Law and Prophets, in both cases, he's mentioning the entire Bible. And this is something that biblical scholars believe. Or at least the, <laughs> you should know that whenever, you know, you can't take someone at their word when they say the word biblical scholars. When I say biblical scholars, I mean conservative. Christian uh, biblical scholars. But anyways, they believe that whenever Jesus said the law and the prophets, uh, as was common back then, they meant the entire uh, Old Testament, the entire Hebrew Bible. Now, notice, though, that Jesus is saying, and we already saw that Jesus claimed to be God, um, but here he's not necessarily saying that the Bible is inerrant. Or, excuse me. He's not necessarily saying that the Bible is the word of God, but he is. This is pretty important, though. He is saying that the 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 Old Testament will be fulfilled through him, right? He's coming to fulfill the law and the prophets. And in, in Matthew, in Luke 24, we see he says that everything written about me in the law and the prophets must be fulfilled, okay? Now, something that's getting a little closer to him calling the Bible, the Old Testament, the Word of God, is found in uh, Matthew 20, oh, excuse me, Matthew 15, verses 1 through 6. 
This is what Matthew 15 says. Verse 1, Then Jesus was approached by Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem who asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, Why do you break God's commandments because of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But to say, Whoever tells his father or mother whatever benefit you might have received from me as a gift committed to the temple, he does not have to honor his father. In this way, you have nullified the word of God because of your tradition. So there's a little bit more detailed version of what we looked at at the beginning of this lecture. You can see that Jesus is calling things from the Hebrew Bible the Word of God. Notice there, and this is what we already kind of mentioned. This just gives us a little bit more detail. Notice there, uh, Jesus says in verse 3, Why do you break God's commandments because of your tradition? For uh, So he's calling the law handed down by Moses God's commandments. Right. In verse six, he says, in this way, you have nullified the word of God. So he is saying that what's contained in the in the Old Testament is the word of God. You see how that see how that works. And there, and like I said, there's more instances of it than just what I'm showing you in these four or five examples. There's a lot of instances. And sometimes you have to piece uh, you have to put gospels next to each other and see that he called it. Word of God in one and, and calls it another in another. But there's there's more evidence than just what I'm showing you. But what I'm telling you is that the when you look at the New Testament um, documents, when you look at the Gospels, Jesus calls or infer or, or uh, implies that the Old Testament is the Word of God in many places. Here's our here's another example. Matthew 22 verses 29 through 32. It says, Jesus answered them, "You are mistaken because you don't know the Scriptures or the power of God." For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now concerning the resurrection of the dead, haven't you read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So here we see that so this is this is interesting to me. For, for Of course, in verse 31, Jesus says, Now concerning the resurrection of the dead, haven't you read what was spoken to you by God? Now, Jesus is referring, right, to the Old Testament um, in Genesis, written by Moses, where uh, God was talking to Abraham. But he's saying that this is this was spoken to them, right? Spoken to them by God. So he's saying that the Old Testament is God speaking to people. Also, he's, he's inferring that, that the stories give you truth about reality. He says, you're mistaken because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Uh, he's basically showing them, telling them that the Old Testament is God's revelation about himself to humankind in which it is true itself, if correctly understood, and it is just directly the word of God to human beings. It's really, really interesting. I mean, you know, and, and what we're saying is if the Bible is, uh, if the New Testament documents are reliable, which we established they were and the authors were reliable, and Jesus is God, then what Jesus is teaching in these accounts, that's what really happened, and that's and Jesus is correct when he teaches these things. Okay. Matthew 12 is the last example I was going to show you. Matthew 12, uh, verses 35 through 36. 35 says, While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? 
David himself says by the Holy Spirit, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. I think this is a pretty interesting example as well. This has a little bit this has a little bit more to do with inspiration, but as we know, Christians believe that the Holy Spirit is God. And you know, you'd have to take a class or or, or take some time out and learn about the, the Trinity to understand that fully. But Jesus is saying that first of all, he's confirming that David is the author of uh, some Psalms. But second, he's saying that um, by the Holy Spirit, David said these things. So uh, some things that David said, uh, some things that David said are, are coming directly from God. And when David wrote that down, that makes it the word of God, right? Because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, I, I, I named this lecture Inerrancy and Inspiration, and I hope I don't, uh, I hope I don't disappoint too many people the 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 doctrine of inspiration is tricky too and there's a correct way to understand it and there's a lot but there's a lot more ways to not understand it it's sim the doctrine of inspiration it reminds me of the doctrine of the trinity you can make this one little mistake and you misunderstand it and now you're now you're a heretic or something like that you know so the doctrine of inspiration is actually pretty tricky and something that we'd have to spend a whole lecture on to kind of wrap our minds around so i wasn't going to mention that but I, I did, but, you know, inerrancy uh, entails that the, the Bible was inspired in, to some degree. So that's why I mentioned it in the title. But here you see Jesus is saying that uh, by the Holy Spirit, David wrote these things down. So it's, it's basically the Word of God. Okay? And like I said, there's more instances of Jesus saying that the Old Testament is the Word of God, but those are just some that I wanted to emphasize. Now, that's the Old Testament. Jesus is saying that the Old Testament is the Word of God. And what we're saying is, if Jesus is God then guess what? Since Jesus can't err and since he wouldn't lie to us, that means that the Old Testament is the Word of God. But what about the New Testament? Um, this is where we point to a couple things that Jesus said in the New Testament. Okay, John 14, I was going to use two examples, one from John 14, one from John 16. So John chapter 14, verses 25 through 26 says, this is Jesus speaking, by the way. I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. And this was Jesus speaking to the apostles, by the way. Uh, similarly, in John 16, verses 12 through 13, it says, I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. You can see that just from these two passages, these two sayings of Jesus, what Jesus is saying is that after Jesus ascends to heaven, the Holy Spirit will come down on the apostles and will guide them into all truth. So when they teach about what Jesus did and said, then they will not be able to uh, tell anything wrong about it. It's not just recounting the events of Jesus' life. It's also talking about what is to come. You see there in John 16, he says he will, the Holy Spirit will also declare to you what is to come. So this would even cover Revelation where the Apostle John um, writes down his, his uh, prophecy of what's going to happen at the end of days. 
So Jesus himself, and if we've established that Jesus is God and, and, and will not teach us error and will not t- tell uh, falsehoods, Jesus is saying that the Bible is the, uh, and I guess I can pretty much go on to the conclusion, the conclusion is, therefore it is true on the divine authority of Jesus Christ that the Bible is the written word of God. If Jesus is God and Jesus tells the truth, which is easy to conclude that he, he does if he is God, then Jesus is telling us, we can see that Jesus called the Old Testament the Word of God, and he called the New Testament, he said that it was going to be inspired through the Holy Spirit. So since the New Testament and the Old Testament are both the Word of God, we conclude that since God cannot err, neither neither will there be errors in the original manuscripts of the Old and New Testaments. So that's where we get the doctrine of inerrancy, and that's how you can defend it and conclude it without using circular reasoning, which I've always thought was just so amazing, and I'd never heard about this until I went to Southern Evangelical Seminary. Uh, But I hope that whether you are a believer or not, you can see that the doctrine of inerrancy isn't—it's extremely—at the very least, it's rational. It's reasonable to believe. If you believe that everything we've covered so far, it's reasonable to believe that the original manuscripts were without error. Okay? So having said all that, I wanted to to say a, a couple of things. One thing that I'd like to say that I, I forgot to put in my slides is that I want you to realize, and this is something that I've heard William Lane Craig say several times before, William Lane Craig makes the point that the doctrine of inerrancy has nothing to do with the truth of the gospel. So let's say that if you're a Christian and you're studying some area of Scripture and you just conclude that, I, I just think that's wrong in what the Bible was affirming there. I just think it's, it's a mistake. Well, there's a few things to think about. First of all, because the problem is some Christians uh, reach that conclusion in some area of Scripture and then they just give up Christianity. Well, William Lane Craig points out that, guess what? The truth of Christianity has nothing to do with the doctrine of inerrancy. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, and, you should, and you should realize that from everything I just covered, right? Uh, the three-step apologetic method is what is used to reach the conclusion of inerrancy. Inerrancy is, is a conclusion reached on the basis that the, the uh, documents are reliable, and that the, all of the evidence suggests that Jesus really did rise from the dead, but it, but the you know but the truth of Christianity is not based on whether the Bible is the word of God because we were just viewing the Bible as just a bunch of manuscripts that told us about history, right? So uh, that is the basis, or or that's something that we would use. Jesus' resurrection is the basis for the truth of Christianity, not inerrancy, right? So if there's some uh, if there's some mistake somewhere in the Bible, then you can just say, well, maybe inerrancy is not correct. But that doesn't have, you know, if I think that there's like a mistake in something that the Old Testament said about how many horses King Solomon or King David had, that has nothing to, you know, that I hope you'll see, that has nothing to do to modify whether or not Jesus rose from the dead or not, right? <laughs> if you want to disprove Christianity, you've got to disprove the resurrection, uh, forget about maybe showing that there's a mistake here and there in the Bible. That that doesn't disprove Christianity. Only disproving the resurrection disproves Christianity. Okay, I just wanted to point that out because that, I think that's a great point that uh, William Lane Craig uses. 
But uh, one thing with inerrancy that kind of comes to my mind that I like to tell people is that, uh, and, and this kind of goes along with, if you've ever read a book called Tactics by Greg Kukul, um, he makes a really great point uh, about always staying on on point. If you're talking to someone in an evangelism or apologetic context, and there's a Christian talking to a non-believer. Sometimes non-believers bring up all these sorts of questions. You know, maybe you're trying to talk about God's existence, or maybe you're trying to talk about Jesus' resurrection. But then the non-believer might bring up ten other questions about other unrelated things, and you can get off on those rabbit trails and forget about the whole reason why you're there in the first place. Well, this is kind of something that goes along with something I wanted to talk about here. Uh, what I've noticed a lot of times is that non-believers or people looking for truth, you know, everybody I talk to isn't some skeptic who's wanting to prove me wrong. A lot of times the, the people that actually want to listen to me are people who are wanting to know the truth, searching for truth, and they're wondering if Christianity is true, but they have some honest questions. Well, a lot of times these honest questions revolve around the Old Testament, but the, the thing is, the, the, the topic of the Old Testament is really tricky. You've got to get into the original context of the ancient Near East. You've got to explain the culture. You've got to explain a number of uh, a million other different things and try to explain to them why what they see, just reading it in English in the 21st century, why it looks immoral, why it looks wrong. You've got to explain all these things to them, right? But, if, if, but what, one thing you might find... now. When you're doing apologetics, I hope you're doing it relationally. I think I talked about this in the first one or two or three lectures on the intro to apologetics and, and apologetic method. What I found in my life is that the best type of apologetics is relational apologetics, where you're it's not just a one-off, you're standing on a soapbox and you're yelling at people in the street, or, or just like a one-off, you show someone an argument in an elevator, or a one-off in a YouTube video. The best type of apologetics is when you're you're building a relationship with someone and walking alongside them and, and, and having these conversations and meeting regularly and answering questions they have as they wrestle with it and come up with more questions. But anyways, at the very a lot of times though, sometimes, especially in, in the context of what happens with me, you know, what I have is students that ask me some questions. Well, a lot of times all I've had you know, I was saying the relational apologetics is the best way to do it, but that's not always what you get. You know, a lot of times you might just get five or ten minutes with somebody, and you might not ever see them ever again. Uh, you know, I see my students regularly, but I only answer questions when they show up after class or stay after class, and I don't control that. So sometimes I've had students ask me some questions after class, I answered them, and then I never got to talk to them in a one-on-one -on -one setting ever again. And, and what's happened is in these discussions, they'll ask me about the Old Testament, okay, in the context of us talking about the truth of Christianity. Well, because it's so complicated to talk about the Old Testament, what I've found a lot more helpful is to say, look, if you really want the answer to this question about the Old Testament, then I can totally keep meeting with you. You know, if you want to keep coming after class, or if you want to meet, uh, you know, in a, at a coffee shop in a in a public location, or someplace on campus, we can keep discussing this uh, uh, this question of the Old Testament. But having said that, I have just talked to you about some evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Now, what I tell them is, 
if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, uh, then we, we're not really worried about these stories in the Old Testament. Does that make sense? These questions of what's happening in the Old Testament would only be really crucial and only be necessary to answer if inerrancy was the basis of Christianity. But like I just mentioned, inerrancy isn't the basis of Christianity. Jesus' resurrection is the basis of Christianity. And, and it's, it's only because Jesus rose from the dead and that he said that the Bible is the word of God that we're even worried about whether these stories in the Old Testament are true or what they point to. Does that make sense? What I tell them is, is that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we don't have that really that much, that many reasons to believe that the Old Testament is the word of God. You know, I mean, having said that, I always tell people that if, uh, that if if Jesus if his body was dug up tomorrow and they proved with DNA or or some 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 way they were able to pre prove beyond a, a reasonable doubt that Jesus never rose from the dead, I would stop being a Christian, right? But I would at least be a theist, and probably I'd be leaning towards being a Jew, because the Old Testament, out of all ancient literature, says some amazing things that do line up with science. I would really be leaning towards uh, maybe Ju Judaism still being true but maybe the Messiah hasn't come. But anyways, that's a whole nother conversation. But my, my point to you is that if someone wants to know about um, some small, uh, what well, these aren't always small, but if somebody wants to know about some question about the Old Testament, you can refocus that and say, look, we can talk about that. But here's the deal. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then you really shouldn't be concerned about what happened in the Old Testament. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Christianity is false. So what you need to do before we worry about all these biblical studies things in the Old Testament, what you need to do is you need to wrestle with the, the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection. If you don't think that happened, then you can really not worry about what it says in the Old Testament. If you do think that happened, then let's turn to that and let's look at those stories and try to figure out what the, the Old Testament author really meant, okay? I just think that's a way much better use of your time. If you think you're only going to be able to talk to somebody for 15 minutes or one time, one off, I think it's best to focus on the evidence for Jesus' resurrection rather than some story in the Old Testament. And that kind of that kind of helps us segue into another major point I wanted to make is that if you can you can use this, uh, you don't have to present the argument for inerrancy, but this is just something to be thinking about. If you are having a conversation with somebody about the Old Testament, right, and it's talking about how, you know, bears came out of the woods and mauled kids, or it's talking about talking serpents in the Garden of Eden, it's talking about all sorts of things that we don't see happening today. And, you know, they're like, how in the world could you ever believe something like that? You can just remember, well, why do you think it's the word of God in the first place? It's because you believe on the basis of evidence that Jesus rose from the dead and that Jesus claimed to be uh, God. And he claimed that the Old Testament is the word of God. The New Testament is the word of God. So on that basis of you believing that Jesus is who he said he was and that the Bible is what he says it is, that's why you give the Bible this uh, leeway. You you approach the Bible with this uh, uh, innocent until proven guilty approach rather than a guilty until proven innocent approach. 
you assume that if it looks like there's a mistake or it looks like there's something off in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament, it's either it's for various reasons. Maybe it's because you don't understand what the passage means. Maybe it's because you don't understand the ancient Near Eastern context of the passage. Or maybe you're just misunderstanding the very context of the passage within the story or the letter itself. Any one of those things could be off. And a lot of times what you find is when you find, look at a, a passage that's a quote-unquote problem passage, you'll find that you can answer, you can show that the, the passage is not mistaken by considering all those things. Uh, you know, um, maybe you didn't understand it. Maybe you didn't understand the context of it. Or maybe you didn't understand the ancient Near Eastern context, what it meant in the, in the context of the ancient Near Eastern culture and history, okay? So... Uh, but yeah, just because I look at a passage and see something that doesn't look right doesn't mean I obviously say, oh, yeah, there must be a mistake and the original author wasn't inspired by God. No, because Jesus says the Bible is the word of God, I, you know, I believe that because I believe that Jesus is God. So I give the Bible a lot more leeway and I and I, I look into mistakes a lot more than someone who just assumed it was false uh, would do in the first place. So just some a couple things to be thinking about but yeah there's our uh, there's our discussion of inerrancy and uh, touching a little bit on inspiration and uh, hopefully I've cleared up some misconceptions about inerrancy for you and hopefully you enjoyed uh, that argument for inerrancy I did want to mention and I think I've already uh, uh, recommended these books before but uh, along these lines of people having issues with the Old Testament, uh, this is just one of several books that Paul Copan has written. I did want to recommend to you, if you haven't already heard of it, if you haven't already read it, Paul Copan has written a book called Is God a Moral Monster? Making Sense of the Old Testament, God. Uh, this is a amazing book that will explain a lot of issues. You know, as, as 21st century modern people, we have all these values that... Uh, are very different from what was going on in Old Testament times. And what you find is what something that God is condoning in the Bible looks really evil to us actually makes a lot more sense and was actually a good thing back in uh, the Old Testament. You know, he talks about how, you know, when we see the word slavery in the Old Testament, we think of southern slavery in, Anna, in the Antebellum South. But really, the, the kind of slavery they had wasn't like that kind of slavery and all sorts of other considerations that show well, a lot of things that look immoral to us in the Bible that God is condoning really aren't immoral uh, if you understand the, the ancient Near Eastern context. Okay, So that's a great book. Also, I think I, I, I know I've recommended this book before. It's a book called The Big Book of Bible Difficulties by Norman Geisler and Thomas Howe. That is an amazing book that points out all these passages in the Bible that people have had issues with over the years and explains why they're not problematic. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed this lecture. Uh, again, here's the questions for reflection. So I hope you found the answers to these. Uh, first question was, do you think it is circular to claim that the Bible is the word of God because the Bible says it is the word of God? Second question is, does what we have covered provide a way out of this circularity? Question three was, have you heard of the doctrine of inerrancy before? What is it? And question four, if you've heard of it, have you heard anyone talk about it in a negative way? So I hope we cleared up those questions for you. I hope we uh, gave you some good things to think about. Here's our quote from Albert Muller again that I wanted to leave you with. 
Muller says, Inerrancy is nothing less than the affirmation that the Bible, as the Word of God written, is totally true and totally trustworthy. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. This is the Bible's own testimony about itself, and it is the historic faith of the Christian church. Um, as I do at the end of all these, I wanted to recommend to you Southern Evangelical Seminary and Bible College. Like I've said a, a few times throughout this lecture, if you want to dig deeper into these issues, if you want to learn more about the doctrine of inerrancy, more about the doctrine of inspiration, and dig deeper into these evidences for Christianity, I highly recommend Southern Evangelical Seminary. Like I've said before, they have in-person classes, uh, online classes, and you can get anything all the way from a certificate in apologetics or, or biblical languages or any number of certificates they have all the way to a Ph.D. So they, they offer undergraduate degrees, master degrees. Obviously, they have a, a, a master of divinity, which is what you get if you want to be a pastor, and a D-man, Ph.D. They've got it all uh, if you're looking into apologetics, philosophy, theology, ministry. I highly recommend it. And I suggest you check that out. You can go to ses.edu if you want more uh, information on that. Uh, that's where I went, and I, I loved every second of it. And I also wanted to mention quickly Kingdom Preparatory Academy. This is where my kids go to school. Uh, I've got uh, two young boys, and uh, they go to Kingdom Preparatory Academy here in Lubbock, Texas. It's a classical Christian school. It goes all the way from pre-K to 12th grade. And, uh, you know, it's a classical model, so they teach your kids how to think, not what to think. And it's also a university model, so you're, the students only go to class, usually Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Um, Friday is optional for a lot of the, the time, but, uh, but yeah, you know, they're, they're at home on Tuesday and Thursday working on their own, working with their parent, uh, parents, and uh, that gets them prepared for college whenever they'll be doing a lot of the work on their own. Uh, if you're looking for a classical Christian alternative to education in the Lubbock, Texas area, highly recommend Kingdom Preparatory Academy. You can go to kingdomprep.org, and that's the website where you can get all the information. You can give them a call, drop by, and say hello. I'd love to uh, see you there. So, um, In the next couple lectures, we are going to be talking about uh, religious pluralism. So I wanted to discuss how the truth of Christianity, um, how that uh, affects or, or how what what like once we've established that we think that Christianity is true and the Bible is the Word of God, what is this? Um, what are the implications this has for other world religions? Because we live in a world where uh, there's people from all sorts of different faiths, and uh, so in the next lecture we were going to talk about religious pluralism, and in the lecture after that I was going to answer the question or at least uh, explore the question of what happens to those who haven't heard the gospel. So I'm looking forward to discussing that, and I hope to see you there, and I hope you have a great day.